Well, good morning, church. It's nice to feel much more prepared this week than I did last week. And hopefully it uh, shows and comes across as well. Hey, one of, the, one of the great joys that I have in my role as a pastor is to officiate officiate weddings. It's, it's a privilege to be asked in the first place, and it's just such a joy to witness um, with others the pledging of two lives, one to another. Weddings, I, I find weddings fun. They're, they're, they're a good time, especially then when they're people from the church, people who, who I know. But one of the things that David and I do as pastors is we don't just take the wedding ceremony, but we work with the couple in the, in the lead up to it. And what we do in those meetings with the couple is not just plan their wedding, but to also try to help prepare them, not just for their wedding day, but for their married life. And one of the hot topics to be addressed is money. And we address it for two reasons. One, the, the bringing together of individual bank accounts is one of the tangible ways in which, and just money in general, tangible ways in which the two become one. Yes, there's the, the kind of biblical, physical way that two become one, but, but money is also a significant step in that process. But the other reason why we talk about it is because money... If you've experienced this, I'm sure, I'm sure and you guys probably haven't, but money can be a real point of conflict in a marriage. Um, and often that conflict comes because each member of the couple view money differently and have a kind of different relationship with money. Um, we use this material uh, from this organisation called Prepare and Enrich, and they have this helpful resource on identifying what money means to you. For, for instance, money might be about status for you that I have nice, new, big, shiny, good things, and so that makes me feel pretty good and pretty special. It's about at least being able to at least keep up with the Joneses, if not even kind of be the Joneses. Uh, or money might be about uh, a source of security for you, that I feel safe and secure knowing that I have a good amount of money saved away. And so, you know, if I, if I lose my job, if my car suddenly dies, if suddenly I need this you know, expensive medical procedure in a different city of the country, if interest rates keep going up, then I'll be okay because I've got enough tucked away. I have security because I have money stored up. Money for others might be a means of enjoyment. You know, spending money on things and experiences means that I can enjoy the good things of life. Or that money might be about control. The fact that I have money and that you need money gives me a power over you that I kind of like. So you can see then that how, how, couple, how the individuals in a couple view money and their relationship with it, if there's a difference there, or even when there's alignment, how they can find themselves in conflict about it. Because inevitably, a saver marries a spender. <laughs> Almost always. And, and, so, and so we talk about money in pre-marriage work because we recognise that relationships can fracture because of this mismatch of the values and priorities about the things and the stuff that we have in that. But we see all this not only in the context of weddings and of marriage, though. Money also seems to often prompt conflict in the context of, of funerals and of life after the death of a family member. You may have experienced this yourself, but, but when the inheritance is divided out, there's, there's disagreement on who gets how much of what. 
because there's the sister who thought that she was the one who was going to get grandma's epic engagement ring. Or, or there's the, the brother who gets less because he's, he's already received a lot while the parents were, were living and now he's getting less but he's arcing up about that or, or whatever it is. And so unfortunately, far too often, relationships fracture because more emphasis and value is put on, on the money and the things and the stuff rather than on the people. And that's what we're going to see as we come to the Jesus story that we're looking at today. And it starts like this, as David read it out for us earlier. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The conflict about the money and the things and the stuff is already underway. Their father, presumably, has died. And if there was no will... The law at the time says that the property can't be divided unless the older brother gives the agreement to it, unless the older son gives agreement to it. And so the person in the crowd putting this request to Jesus is, is presumably a, a younger son who wants his brother to divide the inheritance. And in the meanwhile, while he's trying to get the inheritance divided, the brothers are already divided. And it's interesting then that he doesn't come to Jesus asking for wisdom to think through the issue. He doesn't come, teacher, uh, can you help me figure out how do I reconcile with my brother? Or teacher, can you help me to have a changed heart towards possessions? He comes to Jesus as, as a rabbi, as an expert in the law, demanding that he then pass an authoritative verdict on the matters of the law that makes then his brother act in his favour. And so it seems that both brothers, the, the one who has and the one who, who has not, they're both prioritising the owning and the having of possessions over their relationship with one another. It's actually a sad and a tragic situation, isn't it? And so Jesus has no truck with it. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he says to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He responds firstly by, by calling him man. He's not dignified with a name, nor is he responded to it as friend or brother. It's like, man, come on, dude. Like it's, it's, a, it's not a term of endearment. That there's not a, a closeness and an endorsement of, of his behaviour there. Jesus is expressing his displeasure and his frustration and his disappointment right from the outset. Man! And from there, he goes then to the heart of the issue, to be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Take active measures to defend against it in your life. Why? He says, because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And that has some sting to it, doesn't it? Because how often have we thought, if only I owned a home, if only I owned a bigger home, if only I could afford that holiday, if only I upgraded my phone, if only I had a caravan or a boat, if only I had a pool, if only I had a coffee machine or a thermomix or, or even just a nice teapot, if only I had these things, then I would be happy then I'd be satisfied with my life. But it doesn't work. 
We need to listen, really listen to the truth of what Jesus says. It doesn't matter how many clothes we own, how many books lie on our shelves, how many investment properties we have, or, or whatever it is for you. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And we see that in the person of Jesus himself. John opens his gospel by saying about Jesus that in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And Jesus will go on to tell his disciples, I'm the way and I'm the truth and I am the life. And he says too that I've come that those who follow him might have life and have it to the full. In other words, life and the fullness, the abundance of life is found in Jesus. He is life. And yet, he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I have no place to lay my head. In other words, Jesus says, I've got nothing. There are women who follow him, who financially and practically support him. He stays in other people's houses. He borrows upper rooms. He sleeps out on mountains or in friends' boats. He has no home. He doesn't have the latest model donkey. His sandals are so last season. And yet, and yet he is life. In him is the abundance of life. And so Jesus challenges this, challenges this man's desire for more stuff and more things to say life's not found in them. But Jesus knows that it's easy to, it's easy to discount or reject a statement that you don't agree with. And so Jesus goes on to tell a story. And because he tells a story because they have a way of getting under our skin. They slip past our defences and past our rationalisations and they suck us into the drama. And before we know it, we're nodding our heads in agreement before then, bam, we realise he's actually talking about us. They suck us in so that we find ourselves challenged and convicted by the story. And so we read that Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus gain, grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for yourself for, for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? The story's not complicated, is it? There's a rich man who gets even more riches, so much so that he doesn't know what to do with them. And so his plan is that he will store them up for himself and live a good life, except for the fact that, that God has other plans for him and his life is cut short. Simple, clear, memorable, and it speaks, it speaks for itself. But there are some, some minor details within it that are worth us paying attention to because they draw out greater depth. And so to start with, where has this man's abundance actually come from? We read that it's the ground yielded an abundant harvest. 
Now, now, yes, there's good management of soil and the planting of the right kinds of crops at the right kinds of times, but the size of the harvest is ultimately out of his hands. There are determinative factors like the rain and the sun in the right amounts at the right time that he has no control over. There's the potential for pests or insects or even the neighbor's sheep getting in through a broken fence that that could destroy the crop. These are things that are out of his control that he has no hand in. In other words, Jesus very subtly is reminding that all wealth and all abundance actually comes to us as a gift from God's hands, not from our own effort. I mean, because after all, he didn't tell the story of a banker who shrewdly invested money. Or of a business owner who, through hard work and long hours, finally cracked it big. You know, such stories could, could fool us into thinking that such abundance is, is actually ours, the, the fruit of our labor, that we then have the right to use how we choose. No, no, Jesus doesn't tell those kinds of stories. He tells the story of a farmer to say that the abundance we have comes to us as a gift from God. And that really, it rightly belongs to him, not to us. And so we are, you know, the rich, the rich man in this story is a steward of what God gives, not an owner of what he has earned. Because after all, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. It all belongs to God. Then we read that in the face of his abundance, the rich man, he thought to himself. And the word is literally that he dialogued. With himself. And Jesus is making a subtle point here too. See, in the Middle East, major decisions you know, about what to do with such, such wealth and abundance, decisions about important matters would be made after long conversations and discussions with family, with close friends, even with the community leaders. And such dialogue with others would seek, uh, seek the wisdom of, of, that they have to offer but also would seek the good and the well-being and the prospering of the wider community as well as the individual within that. But this man, he doesn't dialogue with those people. He dialogues with himself. We're not told if this is by necessity because maybe, maybe he's alienated from the wider community, which is a sad and sorry state of affairs in and of itself, or if it's a choice that he's making. But he's only talking with himself he only needs to consider himself, and so his decision only needs to please himself, because that's the only voice that matters in the conversation. And so he decides to keep for himself all the things and the stuff. Jesus is not painting a positive picture of this man, and it doesn't get any better either. This man fails to recognize that his abundant harvest comes to him from God, and so there's no thankfulness. Instead, he's thinking about where he can store my crops. Um, what he says is, you know, I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. I, my and me dominate his thinking. And so it's no wonder that, that he comes to the conclusion, something that will satisfy I, me and my, is that I will take life easy. I'll eat, drink and be merry. And the thing is, he's very nearly biblical as he comes to that conclusion. Well, one of the conclusions that he's reached in the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes is this. So I commend the enjoyment of life 
because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. So we hear echoes of that in in what the rich man decides. But what the rich man misses is the perspective that comes in the second half of the verse. He just stuck with the bit that told him what he wanted it to. Because the verse goes on to say, Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. He figures he's got plenty of grain stored up for many years. But this verse says that joy is found actually in in the toil, in the midst of the meaningful work of life and not in self-indulgent ease. And it also says that the length of his days are not in his hands to be taken for granted, but they're in God's. Not only his abundance, but his very life comes to him as a gift from God and is to be lived in light of that. This rich man, this rich fool, is living a self-referenced, self-centered life and is condemned by Jesus because life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. And so perhaps listening to this story as Jesus told it, you know, both those original hearers then and us as we hear it now, maybe we don't see ourselves in the story. I mean, after all, it's this story of this self-indulgent, isolated rich man. And that's not us. That couldn't be us. And so we see what Jesus is saying and we agree with him for those sorts of people, for people like that. We agree with him for people like the younger brother who just wanted the stuff and the things and who prompted the story in the first place. And so just as we're nodding along with Jesus, we're in full agreement with everything that he says. Yes, Jesus, go get them. You go after those rich people. We go after those people other than us. Just as we're nodding along, he lands the knockout punch. Verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. We don't have to be rich to be like the rich man, Jesus says. Because whoever stores up things for themselves, however much or however little those things might be, whoever stores up things for themselves, living a self-referenced and self-centered life, wanting the things and the stuff more than the person or the God who gives it to them is just like that rich man. And so it could be us. It could very well be us. It could be you. It could be me. Do do we receive Jesus' verdict of being a fool too? And it's not that the things and the stuff that, that it's inherently wrong It's the storing up for themselves and and the not being rich towards God and the things of God, that's the problem. It's the me, my, I focus that's at the heart of it. It's living without other people in view and even more significantly, living without God in view. If the younger brother who demanded to Jesus that his brother share the inheritance, if he was living a life that was rich towards God, What might his initial request have been like? Jesus, how can I be content with what I have? 
Jesus, how can I forgive my brother and let go of my bitterness towards him? Jesus, how, how do I go about reconciling a divided relationship? If he was living rich towards God and not just focused on himself, his question might have been, Jesus, how do I live my life with my heart rightly ordered towards God and, and then the things and the stuff just having the, their proper place in the scheme of things? Jesus, how, how can I be generous? How do I care actively for the needs of others and not just for myself? Jesus, how, how can I trust in God that I will still be okay even without the inheritance? Jesus, how can I be rich, maybe not in material things, but in my life with God and for God and towards God? These would have been the questions that he was bringing if his life was focused less on storing up things for himself and instead was being rich towards God. And it's some of these questions then that Jesus goes on to answer to his disciples. Because after Jesus drops his mic you know, with the crowd, in then verse 22, Jesus then said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you. And that the therefore there reminds us, you know, leads us out of what Jesus has been saying. And it's this direct and immediate connection to what he goes on to say to his close followers. He's saying to them, something more than what he had said to, to the crowds, the masses. He has said, don't store up things for yourselves, but rather be rich towards God. That's the way that we are to live. And so therefore I tell you, flowing straight from that, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap, and they have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Well, since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider, he goes on to say, how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, that not even Solomon, in all of his splendor, not even he was dressed like one of these. And so if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow it's thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You have little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. I'm not going to go through all of that in depth. But you can see the connections, can't you, to what he's already been saying. And what Jesus does here is tell us why we can be rich towards God. Basically, because he's so rich towards us. We, we look at creation and we see God's care and abundance. 
And his argument is, if God cares so much, uh, sorry, if God provides so much care and so much provision and so much beauty and so much blessing for the birds, for the wildflowers, if God does this for, for them that are so, in the scheme of things, temporary, meaningless, of little value, how much more? Oh my goodness, how much more will he do so for us who are so much more valuable and precious in his sight? And so we don't need to worry about and hold on to and clasp and, and, and seek and to store up for ourselves the, the money and the things and, and the stuff because your father knows that you need them. You know, if, if we go back to the meanings that, that we give to money, that we started with. We see when we look at this passage how following Jesus and living in his kingdom addresses all of those needs. Where we look to money for status, we actually have all the status that we need in Jesus because we have been created by him and we have been recreated in a new life by him so that we can call God our father and we can know that we are so much more valuable than birds. We are children of the God of the universe. There is no status better than that. Or when we look to money as a source of security, we have all the security we need in Jesus. Because in him, our future is sealed and our hope is secured. And so we don't need to worry about the rest. We might look to money as a source of enjoyment, but, but we have all the joy that we need in Jesus, who gives us the true life and the fullness of it in himself, so that we don't need to run after these things that all the, the pagans run after, because we have something, because we have someone even greater than all of that. And we don't have to rely on money as a means of control because we can, in Jesus, we can relinquish our control because we recognize that it's he who sits on the throne and he's the king of the kingdom. And so we don't need to be afraid because he's got this in his hand. So, so, so how then do we be rich towards God? How do we provide for ourselves yeah, a treasure in heaven where rust and moth and, moth and thief will not steal or destroy. Well, it starts, as is always the case, by Jesus calling us to lay down the crowns of our little kingdom, to take our crowns off, and to then live as part of his kingdom where, where he wears the crown. And so then the kingdom that we're seeking to serve and to build then is not our own, but instead his. And we start by acknowledging then, as neither the, the younger brother nor as the rich fool did, that everything that we have, everything we have, belongs to and comes to us from God. And we are then his caretakers and, and his stewards. And so Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that, oh, great, I need to call the travel agent and cancel that holiday that I've just booked. It doesn't mean that you can't do anything just fun and, and frivolous for, for yourself. I mean, God gives us good things for our enjoyment as part of the abundance and the, bless, and the blessing that he gives. But it does mean that we need to ask, where is the focus and where is the priority of 
how we are using what God has given to us. We need to be characterized by gratitude and by generosity. Gratitude to rightly recognize that all that we have comes from God. And so to give thanks to him for it. And having gratitude in and for all things helps us to remember that we don't own anything, that, that nothing has come to us that hasn't been a gift from our Heavenly Father. Having gratitude helps us to orient ourselves towards Him and to use what we have, be that money and the things and the stuff, or, or be that our very lives and our time, our words, our bodies, but to use these things as, as stewards, to serve His purposes first. And then we are to be generous with what we have. Again, be that the money and the things and the stuff or, or be it our, our very lives and our time and our words and our, and our bodies, to be generous with those. A few weeks ago, I took my auntie's funeral in, in Tasmania and she and her late husband had owned one of the major trucking companies um, of Tasmania and they made a lot of money. They made, they made a lot of money and they loved making money because they loved then to give it away. They loved to make more so they had more to give. The more their business grew, the more they were able to be generous. That, that's, that's the attitude here. And so as we practice gratitude, recognizing everything comes from God, and as we practice generosity, giving it away because we don't need to rely on it and hold on to it, but we're trusting in, in, in God himself. As we practice gratitude and generosity, where our treasure is and, and what our treasure is will we'll begin to shift. Instead of our treasure being what we have here in this life, we will constantly be orienting our hearts, our trust, our lives to God and to his kingdom. In gratitude and generosity, we, we open up our hands in order to be able to give away our treasure, the treasure that God has given us in the first place. But then with our hands open as we've given away, we are then able to receive because our hands are now empty, able to receive the even greater treasure that we have in Jesus. And that treasure, that treasure is an ever-deepening from now into eternity relationship with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and then with his people, with one another. And this is a treasure that will never fail, that no thief can steal and no moth can destroy. And as our hearts then are set on this treasure, as, as we seek after it and, and to grow and to cultivate the abundance of this treasure in our lives, then we will see God's kingdom come more and more in our lives and through our lives. And the treasure of Christ will become all the richer and the dearer to us as he's the only one of value to us, the only one that we're holding on to, the only one that we're seeking after, the only one who is satisfying uh, all those needs that we have. The treasure of Christ will become all the richer and dearer to us. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let's pray together, and then we'll share in communion. Jesus, I thank you for the riches of who you are and the riches that you have poured out on us in your love and your grace and your mercy. 
your kindness and your compassion towards us. When we look to you, we realize, and when we live in faith and trust in you, we realize that you are our greatest treasure. That our hope is found not in the things of this world, but only in you. And we realize that our life doesn't actually consist in the abundance of our possessions, however much we might get sucked into thinking that it does. But our life is found in you. And unlike our stuff that we have to pursue and hold on to and store up and, and, and effort and labor and distraction, you just give us yourself over and over again in such abundant ways. You are the gift for us just, just to receive in a moment. And so we thank you and we praise you. And I pray then, Jesus, that, that you truly would be our treasure. I mean, these are, these are really nice churchy words to speak, that you are our treasure. But I pray that they'd be true words and real words and deep words of our hearts, that you would be our, our treasure that then as we live our life, that we can do so with gratitude to you knowing that all has come from you and with generosity to others, knowing that you know all our needs and you'll provide. May we not be like the rich fool. Instead, may we be those who seek you first and your kingdom trusting you in all of life and with you as our treasure we pray in your name Jesus Amen